Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming out so early. Hope everyone got some sleep after last night. Um, so today we'll be talking about using queer stories in narrative therapy. Um, first of all, we'd like to introduce ourselves and then just sort of do a brief introduction to what narrative therapy is. And then kind of wanted to just start a dialogue with you guys because we really like we can't tell about our work, but we are more interested in answering any questions that you may have um, and seeing how we can uh, cooperate together in creating something beautiful out of this panel. Um, so my name is Maria. I'm originally from Ukraine. I studied in Spain and in the Netherlands, and now I work as a queer-friendly psychologist in The Hague. And together with my partner, we run a um, podcast called Bipositive about sort of the psychological experiences of bi-plus people. Um, we talk about representation a lot, of course, and about our own work as queer-friendly psychologists. Um, so yeah, my name is Maridiane, and you will be fine. I'm originally from France, uh, and I live now in the Netherlands. Um, so I'm also, I mean, she said everything, so I don't have, <laughs> I don't have much to add. Um, and I did research on um, the influence of uh, representation of the mental, the mental health of uh, LGBTQ women in, in particular. Hi, I'm Nicole Payson. Uh, I am an actress and a writer and a podcast host. You might know me from anyone but me, um, although I look very different now. Um, <laughs> uh, every time somebody tweets a picture, I'm like, oh my god, it was a different life. Um, <laughs> But uh, I'm also a co-host of the podcast coming out with Lauren and Nicole, uh, if anybody listens to that. And um, in terms of therapy, first of all, it's funny, is as a writer, I find that I'm writing therapy into so many of my scripts that it's almost an eye roll as part of why I wanted to do this because I'm like, oh, geez. I'm like, maybe then my character goes to a support group. <laughs> how interesting is that? But I, I, I do that because I, I've realized how much a part of my own queer journey that has been. Um, I've also had loss in my life, so support groups and therapy have come in that way as well. Um, but insofar as... as my own queer journey is concerned like I was in therapy from the time that I came out as bisexual because my parents basically forced me to go um, so there was that and then uh, later it took me many years to come out as polyamorous which is something I will talk about in the poly panel tomorrow um, but it was there was a lot of therapy and like undoing of shame that went into that as well and and I write all of these things into what I'm writing now uh, and with a big focus on the fact that there's been so little representation in these areas that I've had to rely a lot on therapy to be able to be okay with myself so I will be coming at this from that perspective um, just before we start taking any questions I also wanted to make sure everybody knew that I am recording this for the podcast, we might use it, we might not use it, so just in case you're not comfortable with disclosing any personal stuff, it's just so you know. Can you speak a little louder or closer to the mic? Sure. Thank you. All right. Um, so before we begin, I just wanted to ask, just for a quick show of hands, who knows what narrative therapy is? Okay, cool. So I'm going to do a quick refresher. Um, Narrative therapy is something we do a lot and basically takes these, this idea that our lives are comprised of different stories. 
And those stories, especially when something traumatic happens or something bad happens to us, we think that those stories, yeah, they happen to us. We're not part of them. Uh, we're not the authors of our own stories. So what narrative therapy does is we take those stories and we make the person the hero. We make them take agency in what happened to them. And by, by doing that, we kind of turn the narrative around and allow them to become a master in their own life, so to speak. So that's kind of a quick uh, overview. Um, and of course, stories play a very big part in all of our lives, not only for our personal journeys, but it's also a way for us to identify ourselves as part of a group, for example, you know, queer narratives, for example, they, they play a huge part in, in understanding how we're affiliated with this group and how we can, we can relate to other people that are part of this group. And uh, it's also a way for us to develop our self-identity. Yeah, so and it's very relevant for um, queer people. Um, I mean, Nicole kind of explained it actually uh, in her introduction. Um, because we are um, exposed to some stressors <laughs> as, a, as a minority. Um, there are different theories, but basically if we, we take one of the most well-known ones would be the minority stress model um, that was originally developed for um, say people from sexual minorities, sexual orientation, um, different sexual orientation, but um, that's also been proven that it's, uh, it works for um, people with different gender identities as well. So the idea is when you, are, you have to deal with um, discrimination, homophobia, you, you know, have a, a harder, higher chance of developing mental health issues. And there is higher rates of mental health issues, disorders, in the community than in a general population. Um, and that is explained so that that's it, sorry. So English is not my first language, so I'm sorry if sometimes it's not that easy. Um, that, uh, so we are exposed to stressors, and they also make a lot of noise. I mean, I understand that, but we're trying to talk about something serious. I think they're just warming up. I think after the warm up, like, it's over. We're trying to talk about something serious here, but okay. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think they really yeah. Well, um, so um, yeah, mental health, mental health risks. Yeah, higher because uh, because we're exposed to the stressors um, and the stressors that are we can easily identify. So, um, overt homophobia uh, or transphobia, um, discrimination directly, but also more microaggressions, things that we don't necessarily realize. And also, seeing ourselves on screen in a way that is not exactly positive. Um, that hurts, and the way that he, it's the thing that it hurts even more because we internalize it, because we don't even realize that we start believing those stories, though that those things that are being said about us, before even we can realize what we are, who we are, who we are. and that hurts probably even more. And but we know that there are two things that are protective factors that are actually helpful. Reduces, um, reduce the risks, and those are social support. So yes, being part of the community is important. Um, and also, develop the, what really helps is to develop a strong minority identity, to know who we are, to embrace that identity. And I mean, it was the object of my research, but it's, I'm not the only one who shows that, that uh, being exposed to 
positive media representation, positive stories, does help both with social support and getting a better minority identity, a better sense of self as a queer person. Um, so, and, and it's all about what we also do in narrative therapy. We were trying to, to take those hard life stories and turn them around, giving ourselves a sense of our clients a sense of agency, but also creating a, st- uh, a narrative with them that will help them integrate their identity to somehow make sense of things that are, don't make sense originally. And it's very, very helpful when we can have representation to do that, when we can incorporate uh, what we see on screen or read in a book. And you can use those fictional characters or sometimes real life people <laughs> and the example that they bring to in the therapy, in the, in the, in the, in the process. You're going to use those examples and the way people relate uh, with them. So that's why I also wanted to have the perspective of a creator. Because <laughs> you do have a lot of responsibility with that. <laughs> no, it's true, but it's also why it's fun to work as a creator in different mediums, um, uh, to wear different hats. Like, you know, as, as you both were talking, I was thinking so much about the stories that we get on the podcast, because my podcast is all coming out stories. And, you know, it's, it's funny because my dad just started listening literally a couple of days ago, which is like we're like 50 episodes in. He's finally on board. Um, <laughs> but uh, but because my mom sent him some like pretty benign ones to get him started, you know, where I'm not talking about my sex life. So that's good. Um, but, but uh, you know, it's interesting because he said something to me where he goes, you know, I... I didn't realize how much shame someone who's been out for so many years could still have. And I was like, yeah. He's like, I just literally never thought about that. And to me, I mean, internalized homophobia, internalized biophobia, internalized transphobia are just, I'm so, I'm so used to that language and so used to talking about those things that it's, it's second nature to me. But here's this, you know, like 60-year-old white dude being like, yeah, um, and, and it was it was interesting. I was like, yeah, that's called internalized homophobia, and it's real, um, and it comes up all the time. And I think it's it's it is part of why we want to tell these stories because all of us sit there and feel these things and don't often talk about them and don't often go back to our own experiences of coming out and mine the things that that created those stories in our heads in the first place, right? I mean, and it's why I bring up like crossover basically of my uh, bisexual journey and my polyamorous journey which were different but also had so much internalized biphobia in them that like I would have come out as poly a if I had any representation any idea what that was um, a whole lot earlier but B if I wasn't so totally terrified of giving into bi stereotypes um, because I had internalized so much of the like, well, bi people, you know, can't just be with one person, and like the vilification of that, that I, to the point where I literally like became a crusader for that. Whereas in my own heart, I was like, well, I love more than one person, like, and I still couldn't couldn't figure that out. And it's taken a long time to to start undoing those stories. Um, and again, I go back to the fact that, like, then as a creator on the side of it, uh, bisexual people have had almost no accurate representation until 
very recently. I mean, I was even thinking between last year and this year's Clexicon that it's gotten better. Um, and as an actor, it's been fun uh, this pilot season to see some breakdowns. Breakdowns are like um, when they send out casting calls for the different characters and you get to read about you know their personalities or whatever, or if they're written by guys, what, what the women look like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> always, you know the breakdown is written by a man because in the first sentence, it will say something about her looks. Um, but but what's been fun is seeing so much more LGBTQ representation in general, but also several bisexual characters um, that hopefully if these pilots get made and then turn into series, you guys will see, which is, it's exciting. Um, but because there's been such a lack of that and because there is almost no polyamorous representation to speak of at all, um, it's just, it's something that, Unfortunately, I think people who fall into either of those camps uh, have been grappling like in the dark with for so so long. So yeah. Anyway, I, I think about this is like this takes up ninety percent of what I think about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you were very right in saying that, um, especially in therapy and as as a minority, any kind of minority, you have to deconstruct the dominant narrative that has been instilled in you from birth by society to make sure that. You can live with yourself because the entire world is telling you that you're the wrong kind of person, the wrong kind of skin color, the wrong kind of sexuality, the wrong kind of gender, then you know, you're going to feel like crap. And this is where you need to really grapple with that, that idea that, you know what, there are many different stories and some of those stories are not mine and some of these are and I need to find and select what works for me. That's kind of what all of therapy is about um, to, to some extent. I think part of it, too, is starting to recognize who has created these stories. Is it, is it really you, or did someone else create this story of what your life is supposed to look like? And then did you just take that on? You know, and I mean, I, that happens like with all of us, right? I mean, it happens with body image, it happens with sexual orientation, it happens with relationship structures, it's everything. Um, and I think stopping and taking some time to really go, wait a second, did I make that up? Or was that like implanted somewhere back there and I just adopted it because I thought that's what I had to do. And it's also something that can happen within the community because we might within the community those narratives that are super toxic. And yeah, not that long ago I had someone telling me, but if I'm not suffering anymore, if I'm not having all those my mental health issues, if I'm getting better, who am I? So it happens both, I mean, for a lot of people who have uh, mental health issues, sometimes we tend to identify with the, with the problem at one point, but also even more when you are in a situation of minority, because, yeah, who am I beyond that? Who am I beyond the symptoms that I've had to live with all my life, or a long, large part of my life? I'm getting better, so, what am I doing with that? <laughs> you fixed me too fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's, that's really a huge narrative that needs to be deconstructed, is that there is a lot of suffering within the LGBTQ plus community, obviously. But it's okay to be all right. It's okay to not suffer all the time as a queer person. It's all right to wake up one day and be like, you know what, today I don't feel like crap. And... I don't need to feel like crap to relate to other queer people. 
And in recent years, there's been a lot of policing within the queer community that if you're not struggling, that means you can't be part of, part of this place, which is, I think, really toxic. Um, and that's not something that should define your sexuality or your gender identity. It should not define who you are. It's very necessary to have a place to express the hurt, to express the years of not being understood or being, having to hide. The, to have that place is so important, to be able to share the, yeah, the hurt, the suffering, is a, this common experience, a negative common experience, and most of us have. It's very important to have that place, but it's also important to have a place to get beyond, beyond that, to heal from that, and to embrace a different type of life, an identity, one that is positive, that is strong, that has a reason to be proud of and to, to live comfortably with yourself. And yeah, that's basically what we're doing. And it's in, in post-narrative therapy and also other techniques that we use. But in the end, uh, when we have the chance of having like a representation that's helpful. And again, not that long ago, someone who I was working with had very, um, trying to, were trying to find positive resources in their, in their life. And to be honest, they couldn't find anything. So we used TV. In, in this situation, we use even a cartoon because that's something about talking to them. And uh, they felt a little bit ridiculous at first doing that, and, but it worked very, very well because they, they really related and with, the, with, that, with that show and, and some characters, and they could there find the resources that they couldn't have in their own life. And we managed to work from there and build from that. Yeah, I mean, I, I have like three things to say, but I'm making like a list in my head basically saying because it's all so good. Um, one of the things, you know, going back to even anyone but me, when I first submitted to that show, um, at, at, I got the, the casting, uh, the breakdown in, and I was like, oh my god, this is me, and I need to be on this show, and I wrote them a very passionate email being like, I wish this was around when I was a teenager. And I gotta say, I think that so often now. I look like, I, I watch movies that are becoming more mainstream with LGBTQ characters. Did you guys see, um, was it Blockers? That one with, uh, yeah, 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 the like teen movie, yeah. It's like the, first of all, it turns the idea, it's like basically American Pie, I'm aging myself, it's fine. Um, <laughs> but, like, but like reversed, where it's like the girls are trying to have sex, and I'm like, yes. Um, and then one of them is gay, and I was like, yeah. Uh, and I just thought from so many perspectives, from like, a, you know, destigmatizing female sexuality and then also having everybody on board supporting the, the queer character, I was like, if this had been around when I was a teenager, my entire life would have been different. Like, I, I mean, it's mind blowing to think about it from that, that standpoint and the amount of shame that it would have been lifted at such a young age. So like, to your point, it is, representation is so crucially important. It literally shapes, I think, the trajectory of people's adult lives um, in, in many ways until we can you know, get there ourselves. Um, so there's that, and then also um, in terms of positive and uh, positive, negative, everything in between, uh, stories in terms of coming out and um, queer trauma and things like that. On the podcast, we really make a concerted effort to have diverse stories, not just diverse um, from a race, religion, ethnicity standpoint, 
um, gender standpoint, but also from a positive negative standpoint. And it is funny how many people who have come in with positive stories have actually said, like, I don't know if you want to interview me because like it was a pretty good experience and I don't know if that's what people need to hear. And we're like, no, of course people need to hear that. Like it can't all be bad. And on the flip side, if we only had positive experience stories, then that that would also alienate a whole other group of people who didn't have positive experiences. So we really try um, very hard to mix up those those stories um, because people do come from from different places and it's okay to have a negative experience and then get to a positive place or have had a positive experience and then struggled later with other stuff. Um, it's, it's all normal and I, I don't know. So there's, there's that and then, oh yeah, policing. Um, <laughs> only because I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta. Um, I think, you know, I think the policing within the, the queer community is a symptom of uh, policing in general right now uh, that's happening, um, you know, and it is always good to remind ourselves that like Twitter is not real life, you know? <laughs> um, I think about this all the time. I'm a huge like political junkie, so, uh, but I purposefully don't follow it on Twitter because I think it's toxic. Um, but I, I do find that it's very sad that we police each other within the community. Um, and I think one of those, one of the main reasons I feel that way is because it goes back to that, what I said before about like, who created these stories, right? Who told us that this is the way that we're supposed to live and be, you know? Um, and going back to like Polly for a second, something that I found so interesting when I was talking to somebody else who was poly in a group atmosphere, they said, you know, our, when the queer community was fighting for marriage, right, one of the dominant narratives in that fight was we are just like everybody else. All we want is to have like the white picket fence just with the same gender. And for some people, that was true. But also what we, didn't really take into account and make part of the narrative was that we were taking on an institution that was already fraught with issues. And we were just saying, hey, we want to, we're just like you, we're just like you, accept us, we're just like you, without stopping going, maybe not all of us are just like you, and maybe that's okay. And maybe we can be exactly who we want, and maybe we can challenge these things too if we want to. You know, and I think that that made it very difficult for some people who didn't fall a within like gender lines and b within relation like traditional relationship structures to find themselves within the community. Um, and I think there was a lot of pressure coming from the community into the community to be like everyone else. You know, to be able to pass. So. Just before um, the questions. Um, I just want to. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, there are a lot of things to say, but we'll see with the question where it go, where it's going. Um, just wanted to add something because uh, we want you to ask questions because it's all about creating. Also, um, co-creating the panel, as uh, we do uh, also in therapy. But um, you know, I was talking about my my client earlier, saying like, you know, the, you fix me too fast. There's one thing is that I don't fix anyone. The Client, patient is fixing themselves. Um, um, what I generally say uh, for uh, when we start working together is that we are in the same car. I'm the co-pilot, but you're driving. So if we're going to places, it's your job. 
it's you're doing. I just have the map. That's all. <laughs> so, who want to start with the questions? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, it looks very differently depending on, on the client, obviously. A lot of the times it's just a matter of reauthoring the story as in, this didn't happen to you, you were there, you know, why do you think you are the villain in the story? How can we change the narrative in a, in a way that makes you the positive character, that makes you the hero? So it can be, like, I'm a big fan of writing letters, for example. I'm, like, my clients hate me for it. But I'm always about, like, you need to write a letter to your parents and tell them how you feel and tell them how they should have, you know, worked differently. And they're like, should I send it? And I'm like, no, no. I mean, <laughs> if you want to, go ahead. But that's not the purpose of this exercise. So letter writing, there's a lot of other techniques, like, from, from other schools of thought that can be used, like the empty chair technique, where you kind of address... Um, the person in your life, usually a parent, that that, that screwed you up. Um, uh, so you do that, um, and then we, you know, there are things that we can apply from popular culture, such as, you know, uh, what happened with your client. I love using references to uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, um, because I'm, I'm such a huge fan of that show, because that's exactly what narrative therapy is about. You're using songs, mini stories, to explain what happens in your internal world, and that is amazing to me. So I use that a lot, and if my clients are like, I've never seen that show, I'm like, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> this is your homework. Um, she doesn't really talk like that to her clients. <laughs> <laughs> I paraphrase a lot. Um, so all of these kinds of things, and I find that I, I work a lot, of, uh, a lot with artists, and artistic personalities are amazing to work with in therapy because they just engage with the material and they make it their own. I've had people who wrote poetry about what they're experiencing, not just their life stories, but also their internal world, using a lot of metaphoric language that is very interesting to examine and, and ask, you know, you wrote about, say, a darkness. What does that darkness represent? How can we change that to make it more positive? Um, there are people who like to draw. Um, I, have uh, quite a few artists who send me their drawings and they're like, oh, this is just silly. And I'm there looking at it and I'm like, no, it's not. We have to talk about this. Um, so various different things. Uh, I think you had a dancer as well. Oh, yeah. um, I had a musical composer. So there are so many ways in which you can engage with, with their artistic output and, and see, you know, examine thing. I was there with this guy who sent me his like 16 minute long contemporary classical music piece which was painful to listen to. For you, because, For me, it's, not because it's not my thing. Um, <laughs> but I was, I was sitting there, and it just sounded so sad. It sounded like this person was really suffering. It was just a lot of screeching violin. It sounded like screaming. And I talked to him later, and I asked him what was that about, and he said I was in a very abusive relationship at the time, and I realized that I was, when I was writing this, I was trying to get this person's attention. I was trying to make this person believe that I counted in this relationship. And I was like, yeah, I got that. <laughs> because that's, you know, all of that screeching, that's where it is. And that was the first time he ever made the connection that at the time when he was writing that piece, he was under a lot of pressure, but his partner was also treating him like crap. So, so many different things that you can do. Um, some people don't respond well at first 
because it's very confrontational um, in a lot of ways. You're asking them to, to basically point out what's wrong in their line of thinking, which happens a lot in therapy. Um, and with resistant clients, I just, I just give them time. It's very frustrating uh, because I'm also kind of the, the kind of person who likes to do things fast, kind of likes getting to the point, but sometimes you just have to make sure that they have the space to understand that they can, they can take their time, they can um, engage with the material in the way they can and in the way they will. And sometimes, you know, the things that you expect to happen don't happen. Something else shows up and you're like, wow, this, this is where your mind goes. That is amazing. You have a beautiful mind. So let's work with that. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, also it can be very simply like asking the person to actually rewrite <laughs> the story. Uh, not necessarily as a letter, but really just as a whatever they, what they can actually write. But not everyone can take the time to do that, so we're trying to find a way, this way of uh, reauthoring in, in like their own way. Uh, the composer as well, where I, I actually the piece that he didn't like, I asked him to actually rewrite it so that he would like it. And it was very, very uh, helpful for him in, uh, in that situation. It's a very specific situation. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so first of all, Nicole, when you mentioned by representation, Daryl's getting advice on racist girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. The show just ended, so it's been on my mind a lot. Like, it's always on my mind, but like especially lately, I just messaged a friend almost entirely racist girlfriend lyrics. It's a conversation. Um, but very Rebecca Bunch question. You mentioned how those clients who get mad at you because they're they're getting better. They have that strong mental illness identity. Like how how do they kind of cope with that? Like how do you like talk to them about it? I mean, by going slowly, actually. <laughs> also by explaining, uh, also explaining things that that I think have a function. That if you develop those symptoms, it's not out of nowhere, and that also some things are just most of the things actually are just defense mechanism, coping de- mechanism that went just a bit too far. Uh, I mean, we can always see depression as something actually functional sometimes. Uh, when you're grieving, for example, you go through depression and sometimes the depression there is very useful because uh, otherwise the, the, the hurt of the loss would be way too much to handle. So you need to just slow down your system. And here it's functional. And it's not functional when you are stuck in there. When it becomes too much and you can't get out of your house. Um, if you, do, you just need more time alone, I'm simplifying things a bit, but it's okay. If it's you can't get out of your house for several days and you're losing your friends and you can't go to work, that's not functional anymore. So it's also to just say, okay, some of those things are not necessarily dysfunctional in themselves, by themselves, and what is functional, what the function is. We actually work uh, in a narrative way on, about that as well. So, you know, what was the function and how can you turn things around and how um, it's not just narrative therapy, but we also can kind of personify things. We also do both do actually uh, schema therapy and where you can, we're going to use uh, more um, objective techniques and questionnaire to just identify schemas, which are like the, um, the, the dysfunctional, beliefs. yeah, those functional core beliefs that you can develop about yourself and that will negatively influence your thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, basically. Um, so those schemas, most of the time, again, might not be entirely dysfunctional by themselves, but have a function for you. So it's, okay, what are those? And how can you just, you know, bring things back in the, in, in, like if you see things on a continuum, 
where things are either too much or too little, and in between you have uh, like a functional zone. It's how to bring back things in that functional zone. And you present things like that, it's a lot less scary because we're not asking you to change entirely, just to adjust. And, and you also will feel better. <laughs> and I think uh, what also helps is uh, positive resources because a lot of these people don't understand what having positive resources is. So it's about reconnecting them with their passions. It's about reconnecting them with their family and with their friends, those that are, of course, accepting and, and good for them. Um, so a lot of the times it's, it's also about just making sure that they, they know that there are good things in life, that they don't have to hyper-focus on, on whatever their disorder, disorder was to have a sense of identity, that there are other things they can do, new hobbies they can engage with, new communities they can be part of, things that you know, having their issue did not allow them to do before. Now they have stepped outside of their comfort zone just enough to shake hands with new people and to kind of become part of something bigger and better. No, and also it's the idea that what I said earlier is that I don't initiate the change. The change comes from the person. So if it has started, that somehow they're ready. It comes from them first. I just want to say something on this quickly as a, um, <laughs> both as a patient and an artist. Um, I think sometimes it's not, it's not even the, or we, we collapse like hanging on to the pain with hanging on to the events of our lives and what has made up our story. And I can say, you know, from a, from like a grief perspective, you know, uh, it is almost everyone that I know who has suffered major loss has said that they have very mixed feelings about feeling happy again. Because there's this thought that if I feel happy again, then I'm somehow more distanced from the loved one that I lost. And so part of my therapy, at least, has been trying to recognize that, that my sister is never going to go away regardless of how I feel. I can feel happy and I can have a fulfilling life and she can still be present for me without me having to be miserable all the time. And so I think like understanding that, that difference in that scenario is, is very helpful. And then I think artistically, like from a creative perspective, ugh, we're like, we're all taught, I mean, it's true, right? The more experiences you have, the more you can actually speak to something genuinely. And I think that as that some artists really attach to their pain because they feel like that is their artistic juice, like that's where it's coming from. And so again, instead of being able to use the experience and the story to share and hopefully heal other people, they stay in that place of pain because they feel like they can't create unless they are in that. Um, and that ends up being destructive too. So it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're entirely right. It's a lot about grieving here. And grieving is integration, actually. It's not forgetting. It's just putting the person who's deceased or the thing was lost at their rightful place for yourself. And so when you have to let go of something, it's I'm not abandoning it, abandoning it, just putting it at its rightful place in my life, in my story. And it might be even more difficult, for example, with grieving an abusive parent. Because there's a lot of mixed feelings there. Mm -hmm. 
and between between because there's hate, but there's love, and it's attachments. It's very complex. So it's how to make sense of that and put put the whole thing at its rightful place in our life, in in our system somehow, in the way it function. And it's not letting it go, and it's keeping the positive and taking it and do something with it, and use the negative in a way that, yeah. I've got something also out of it. I might have gotten stronger out of it, or also I've learned about things. I've learned about life. I can try to make something with it, and it's sometimes very, very hard because there are things that we can't really make sense of. But people are very resourceful, and we generally come manage to, yeah, come around and find a way to make sense of it, to integrate it, to build on it, even if it's a negative experience. Yeah, I think once again, it's just about deconstructing the dominant narrative of what grief is supposed to be in this in this case, because we have this like romanticized view of grief that we see in television. You wear a black veil and you like just sit there for years on end and you cry. But sometimes people can't cry, and that's a very normal reaction as well. People are in shock. It takes years for for some people to cry when they mourn, when they mourn someone they loved, and that's absolutely okay. The thing is. Society tells us it's not. Society tells us that there is only one right way to grieve. And so there's a lot of shame attached to this idea of, you know, I actually feel okay today. And I'm, th this person is still on my mind, but that doesn't change the fact that I have to go to work and I have to take care of my kids and I have to do this and that. Um, so it's, it's also all about deconstructing this idea that you have to do something a certain way because we all come from very different places and we have very different stories. But was this going to one Yeah, just wanted to add something. Um, the, um, because it's something that, as you said, it comes up a lot. It's the same thing about suffering, and I'm I'm queer because I'm suffering, and because also many people can't live that life. I lost that. Or see, it's either I lost that person, and I can't be happy because of that, or I see that there are a lot of uh, hurt, a lot of suffering in the queer community, a lot of pain, and some people who are in some country they can't even be uh, publicly who they are, it's just even thinking it's dangerous somehow. How can I live a happy life? Uh, and it's the, the narrative that you have to be in pain because others are in pain. But you can turn it around and saying that actually living the best life you can and be happy is the best you can do for those people, for the person who's dead or who's passed, who passed away or the, the people who are in this very difficult situation at that moment. Is, to prove to see that having living that happy life and, and trying to do the best is is actually the most respectful thing you can do for the other person, for the one who passed away that you lost, or for the one who is in pain right now. And you can also help them if you can and in in a way or another, but to help other people you have to be okay yourself. And and that's changing the narrative. Um, at last year's PlexCon, the actress who plays uh, Alexander's on Supergirl, mm -hmm. on her panel, uh, she made the comment, um, being a badass is healing. And mm -hmm. that got a very strong, positive reaction from the crowd. <gasps> and, but I was also thinking that a lot of the shows, especially like on the CW, the um, narratives there have a lot to do with um, retribution and violence. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's kind of set up a conflict. And I just was wondering if you had any insight or comments about that. 
Mm. I'm just going to answer on the on the ballast part because no. it was actually <laughs> because it was actually uh, some results I had working on the impact of positive representation of uh, on LGBTQ women identity and sense of self and sense of self. It was actually my uh, <laughs> my uh, topic, but it was one of the things that made uh, that made a great great positive impact was empowerment. And so having badass, powerful women, it was the empowerment part of it. Like, okay, I feel stronger because I see those very strong characters. That not only, it's a little more than just identifying with, so it's a bit more complex, but clearly having very strong, but also well-rounded uh, characters who are just uh, not one-dimensional uh, and who had a life after coming out. Um, <laughs> that, all of that. You live. You want to live. <laughs> It's crazy. <laughs> uh, that was, yeah, one of the criteria to make positive representation actually positive in terms of identity for the, for the audience. Yeah, I think on this, I can speak to this pretty uh, directly from like an acting standpoint and from um, a personal journey, really. Um, I think, well, first of all, it, it, it's, it's funny because for a while, like, I've been going in for like the badass, but I haven't quite been able to step into it myself because of a lot of fear of, I don't know. I, I, I think what it comes down to is, ugh, I hate to put it this way, but like, how much I internalized femininity and what that meant and what I was supposed to be as a girl and how I was supposed to act and what I was supposed to do and what I was supposed to not do. And it has been extraordinarily empowering to start actually coming into my own feeling like I can step up and play these badass characters and not give a shit. But I have to tell you that part of that was also letting go of how I look, of going, I don't care if I look pretty anymore. And, and I, I absolutely mean that, that there is something about going, I don't care because this has to be about whatever's inside and not about outside. And as women, we are judged constantly by what's going on outside and certainly as actresses. And I think to your point of violence, part of the issue there is that we have had, this is an industry that has been dominated by male eye, right? By the male experience. And unfortunately, what then it means for women to be badass is doing what guys do, which is being violent. <laughs> Absolutely. Stories that were shown about you know being powerful and claiming who you are necessarily have to be linked yeah. then to a narrative because men are still writing because men, yeah. because men. <laughs> yeah. And it's set up as as a, you know overcoming evil or something like that. There's a there's a reason for it. But again, I think it's I think it's toxic for us to only have those stories being shown, especially today. 
Yeah, it is. And I, I, I do really hope that with more women in writers' rooms, we're going to start seeing a difference there. And we're going to start seeing, you know, quote-unquote retribution expo um, explored in other ways besides just kicking someone's ass, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but, you know, men have, men have been running the show for so long, you know? Yeah, yeah I mean, it's changing. And I was just thinking Captain Marvel. I was just thinking that too. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think there are many different ways of being a badass. Um, and these shows, these stories need to be written by people who understand that. Um, women. Uh, <laughs> and there are, like, think about, say, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Think Rosa Diaz. Yeah, she's a badass. She can kick ass. I'm pretty sure she can shoot very well. But one of her most badass moments was her being vulnerable, her coming out to her parents, her, you know, sharing that experience with her friends at the precinct. Like, those things or that made her badass. And to the point of Captain Marvel, yeah, she kicks ass, but one of the most powerful, for those who have seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about, one of the most powerful moments is when she's being challenged by this guy who embodies straight, white, toxic masculinity, and she goes, I have nothing to prove to you. That's badass. That's what I want to see more of. Yeah. I mean, she still shoots him, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, she's speaking his language. <laughs> Okay, but let's face it, it's super cathartic. <laughs> yeah, you didn't know, encourage um, violence. So, uh, I'm just going back to that thing about uh, like where people need to see positive mm -hmm. narratives, because I know this may be very difficult to believe looking at me, but I'm very out in my life. <laughs> uh, so, I get a lot of people who have like never really had a lot of queer people in their life coming to me and being like, I've never told anyone this, but I'm like totally gay, or I think I might be trans, and I'm just like, because I'm out as both, mm -hmm. like, I'm like, I like girls and I'm non-binary, so I've got, the, I've got a few mm -hmm. things covered there. Um, so, you know, I get a lot of people coming to me and, like, they're scared because they haven't really seen anything except what's on TV, and that's, like, death and despair and struggling. And I'm just like, I feel like I need to pick out the positive parts of my story. I'm like, okay, yeah, there are a few things that are really hard, but I'm like, hey, here's the positive parts of my story so that they can believe that they have a positive part. But how do we balance that with being truthful? Because... Like, even years, like, like this has been going on since high school, man. I've, I've kind of gotten used to, like, people coming to me for, like, you're gay, let me tell you all about me. Um, so, uh, but I've, like, so I've kind of gotten used to picking out the positive parts because I realized a long time ago, wait a minute, they're, they're scared, they need to hear something that make this less scary. But even years later, like, my experience isn't all positive. And I don't want to lie to them and tell them, oh, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to always be great. You're never going to experience homophobia. Because <laughs> that is not the way it works. But I also don't want to make them believe that they're always going to struggle. Because, you know, there are good times. You meet people who, like, make you feel okay. But I don't want to... How do we, how do we mix the two without, without being dishonest, but also without <laughs> hurting them? I mean, um, listening, to, <laughs> listening to people come to us and, and tell us all about how gay they are, that's kind of our job. <laughs> so coming, coming from a very different Thank standpoint here. Ask. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, in, in the therapy room, we act first and foremost as an empathetic um, receptacle for whatever the person needs to say. Uh, so in that sense, it's, it's, to me, it's about empathy. Um, um, sympathy more so. I don't like the word empathy for a variety of reasons. Um, yeah, it's it's about understanding. Yeah. It's about understanding um, and, and even if you don't fully understand what's going on for that person, it's about reflecting back to them and make them feel heard. Um, a lot of the times you don't have to reassure them. 
is just about for them to understand that there is a person out there like you who managed to overcome things. Yeah. That's, that's what they need to see, and that's what we need to see in media as well. And it's also about respect and about conveying that you speak their language and you understand what they're talking about. I had a, a transmasculine client come in um, who wasn't out, and I, first, like, second minute of our session together, I asked, I asked this person for their pronouns, and they said, I was never asked this before. That's, that was shocking, you know? So, and that put a smile on their face, and that made them open up. So it's, it's really about having a common language, and it's about hearing them out. And if they want to hear good things, you tell them good things. And if they ask about the bad things, tell them honestly, this is, this is what's happening. But I think most people are realistic enough to understand that it's not all going to be unicorns and rainbows. But they also need to hear that they're going to be okay. And, it's, and it's, yeah, it's not so much about the story you tell, but how you tell it. And if you... It's like we had, with empathy, or right? at least understanding, feeling what the other person might be able to hear at that moment. It's not about hiding things, not at all. Just put in, putting them in perspective, if need be. Yeah, I, um, I, I so relate, because basically since, NY, since, since NYU, guys, that's where I went to school, um, since anyone but me, um, uh, <laughs> this has like basically been my life, um, is getting contacted by uh, queer people from all over the world and sharing their stories and asking for advice and uh, or just wanting to talk or whatever. Um, I have to say, especially in the past couple of years, for any of you that follow me on social media, and I would say specifically that follow me on um, Instagram, I have found that the most genuine and healing thing is just being completely honest about when things aren't good. Like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty positive person. I have, you know, had, I've been fortunate to have some real positive things about my own coming out and about my own queer story. Uh, I've also had a huge amount of loss in my life and some really tough stuff happen and I started basically making posts and videos a couple years ago when I was not doing well and like just sitting there and talking about what I was feeling and I have to tell you that that it wasn't me putting on a positive face that made people feel better it was me going I'm not okay right now, and that's that's all right. And here's how I'm feeling, and that has generated more, like thank you, and you really touched me, and I needed this today than any positive posts <laughs> that I've ever put up, honestly. And you know, worry that you're like scaring people away or oversharing or no. <laughs> no. Because here's the thing is like I also I'm not really an overshare. I, I know people who are. Um, I'm pretty selective about when I share and what I share. Um, I just when I decide to share, I share without a filter and with a lot of sensitivity. So to that in that way, no. And if someone's scared off, that's their I think they got stuff they gotta deal with, you know. It's, it's like what I said earlier, it's not how you tell a story, it's how and when 
it tells a story. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as therapists, sometimes you need to like, you need to self-disclose. Uh, especially like if, if you're a queer-friendly therapist and you have a queer client come in, you will want to self-disclose because they will feel more comfortable. It's you know, much easier for them to share with, with you know, uh, someone who understands the experience rather than, say, with a cis-head white dude, <laughs> for example. There will be a barrier there that they will have to explain who they are, explain their experience, explain that coming out is hard. Wow, what a shocker. Like all those different things. Um, so self-disclosing sometimes is good. We do it very sparingly um, as therapists. In, in private life, life, of course, is different. Um, but it does serve a function. It depends on whether you're very sure that this will help the person. And you really have to filter how much you tell them. Also, and this is from a therapy standpoint, not to lose your credibility. Because that's also important. Because if you're going to be like, yeah, I'm also a mess. They're not going to come back to you. <laughs> so it, in, in a therapy setting, it's, it's quite different. There was a question over there, but yeah. it was about... It was about self Oh, okay. Again, one, and just to come, yeah, one of the things we do is like subtle self-disclosure. Like we have uh, mugs with a with a, a, a bi dragon, like with a bi flag, yeah, and it's like also there's a gigantic um, rainbow flag in the office. Subtle, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean we are we are we are the ties. We are we're clearly on the market as queer friendly, but to disclose a little bit more personally, we have the mugs, and it actually works pretty well for the clients who need to see it. They they connect right away. Yeah. And the others, I mean, we do have um, non-queer clients and they just don't even see it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Is that how you tell? Huh? Is that how you tell? Which is which? Uh, yeah, we, I mean, we know because it's a, one of the first questions we ask. Is a person uh, gender identity, pronoun, sexual orientation? That's, yeah. I, um, just one other thing on this too, in the, in, in the timing, uh, you know, it, uh, I did get to a point where, when, when I was doing YouTube videos regularly, where I was like, God, I just don't think I can like rip myself open this week. <laughs> like, this is also not healthy. So I think that that's another thing, is, is finding that balance and deciding for yourself when you feel okay to share, and when also you need to not, and you need to just be alone and process, and like, knowing that's all okay too. Yeah. Okay, so the very last question. So I'm a therapist, yeah. um, and I actually am, I'll put out that I'm queer friendly mm -hmm. uh, because of the people that I see. So a lot of people want to, if they're people of color, they want to see mm -hmm. a therapist of yeah. color. Mm -hmm. And so I can't be like all out because most of the time people of color are also, especially black people, are homophobic. Mm -hmm. So I have to sparingly like self-disclose, right? But the one other thing I did want to say about uh, when people come into session and being non-judgmental, mm -hmm. that's something I don't think you guys said because when people talk, course, yeah. well, not yeah. those words, yeah. right? But when people talk, they want to be able to say things and not get a negative response because they can get that from their friend and their family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, yeah, of course. it's uh, the. What's your, yeah, <laughs> non-judgment non is uh, yeah. therapy 101. <laughs> it's also but like, we, we should have said it, you're right. Yeah. Like, sometimes go without saying, but actually should be said and worded clearly. But like, who can't relate, though, if, for all of you that are in therapy, where you're like, ooh, my therapist is going to be so happy with me, that's so <laughs> <laughs>
I'm gonna be the best therapy student ever. <laughs> you know, and then you're like, wow, I'm not telling the truth because I'm just trying to make my therapist like me. Okay, so that's, it shows. Yo, I hope. I mean, I know. I, I, I've finally gotten there. I have a good enough therapist now that I don't have to bullshit her. Yeah, there's, there's a one moment where you, I mean, there's a couple of moments where you, you I mean, I, at least both of us, can, mm. we need to, we, we are pretty confront, confrontational when it's necessary and all that kind of thing. It's like, really? Are you, really? <laughs> Yeah. I think I think the important thing as a therapist, at least in, from my perspective, is not to judge the person, but to evaluate the things that they're saying. Because I, I do I do say you need to stop talking like this about yourself. Oh, you need yeah. to stop using should. I hate the word should. I should be doing this. I should be feeling that. Like who, what? You shouldn't be doing anything. Yeah. So that is important, and that is something I have 100% no problem confronting them about. And just one last thing about about self disclosure. Uh, what you were talking about. Um, obviously for, for people of color it's completely different and I cannot relate to that experience. I can say that as a Ukrainian person who works with Ukrainian people who move to the Netherlands, as open as they can be, it's also a very traditional culture um, and sometimes the, the choice has to be made between do I disclose as Ukrainian speaking, coming from, from Kiev, I can talk to you about your culture, or queer, and honestly, what works best for me is to find that niche market, that intersectional market of queer Ukrainians. Because and that's you found where I, some. And I found some. And, and it was great because that's, you know, that intersection is something that's super important because, because of that dichotomy, because people only feel comfortable about disclosing about one part of their identity. So sometimes it, if it means reducing your market, it's a good thing. Possible. If it's, it's not possible, always possible, yeah. especially if you work. I mean, we're self-employed, so we have uh, it's a luxury. Yeah, <laughs> we can advertise we want, but we are out of time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. thank you all so much. Yeah. This is a great. Yeah. 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 So this means you're going to be super busy. You have six other panels. I have six other. Oh. <laughs> oh, come see me uh, tomorrow. I'm on uh, Morris Moore polyamorous representation in the media. Uh, and then bisexual representation, right? Back with, to us. Back. with us. With us. <laughs> with us. Yes, yes, yes. We're us. all doing that together. Um, on Sunday, uh, for those of you who haven't heard my podcast or have and are fans, we are doing a live show at 11.15 on Sunday with Brianna Benskis. So if you guys want to come, it's going to be so much fun. Yeah. And tomorrow afternoon yeah. at 5? Five. 5. Five. five, four, five, I don't know. Something last, like last panel of the day. Check your flexicon up. Uh, we have another <laughs> mental health uh, panel about, about more uh, accessibility um, mental health services for LGBTQ people less oriented uh, towards uh, narrative therapy with um, Jen, who is here. <laughs> and Jamie, who is not here. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank Enjoy you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye. Bye.